Hey, what's going on, champs? I'm Aaron Deliosa. Welcome to an Immigrant's Life podcast. My podcast is about immigrants, immigration, and everything in between. Last Tuesday of November, last episode for November. Goddamn, time flies. But we're still here telling stories while laughing and sometimes crying about it. But overall, enjoying the process. Speaking of process, if you want to join the complete process, check us out on Instagram and Facebook at An Immigrant's Life. Listen to the podcast on YouTube and however you listen to your podcast. So as I said before, but I'll say it again, if you're an Apple Podcast listener and you want to support us, give the podcast a five-star rating and a review. A great example is a review from H.L. Woodlet. It says, going to share with my newcomers ELL students. Love this idea and the YouTube channel as well. Going to share these stories with my multilingual newcomer students. See? Short and sweet. And we'll be forever grateful to you. So far, we have close to 20 ratings. And I'd like to increase that. So please help us multiple those review. If you leave a review, I promise I will read it on here and give you a shout out. All right, I'm going to shut up now. Let's talk about the episode. This week's guest lived in a very unusual way. She's an Indian American who grew up in neither India nor America. Ooh, intrigue. Also, her company just released their history podcast. You can find the link in the description of this episode. And it's really, really good. So you should check it out. So, without further ado, let's get into the show. Isa, dalawa, tatlo. Today's guest is a self-proclaimed feminist who watches The Bachelor. She's also an accomplished marketer and now a founder of a media project called Kahani. Everyone, please welcome Nikki Agarwal. Hey Nikki, how you doing? I am doing so well, Aaron. How are you? I'm good. Nice to meet you and thank you for coming on the podcast. Oh, I'm so excited to get to have a conversation with you. Really? Why? Oh, because um, I feel like you get kind of like deep answers out of your guests. And I love getting to talk to people that have like very different immigrant and diaspora perspectives from Mm. mine. Yeah, I I like that too. Oh, before we continue, would you like to promote anything? Um, Well, with Gahani, I think there's two things for any teachers or students listening. We just put out a the Kahani Teachers Library, where any history teacher can find primary and secondary sources. Um, For non-teachers, we also just put out the History Mystery Box, which makes for a good holiday gift where you can experience history at home. Mm, Is that the one, like the the puzzles? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I was looking at like, this is cool. I like this. Oh, good. Well, you know, you know where to find it and (laughs) you should order a couple. Yeah, for sure. So I read that your name is actually Nikki. It's not a nickname. Is that true? That is true. Um, So I am the second kid um, in my in my family. And my my sister's name is Juhi, a very beautiful, um, like traditional Indian name. And then when it came time to name me, my parents um, had two issues. One, they wanted to find like a name that was more easily recognizable in the U.S. Mm 
mm-hmm. um, because everyone would like get confused with my <laughs> sister's name. And then second though, uh, so they were thinking of names, but the other issue was that they didn't want to find out um, the sex of the baby uh, while my mom was pregnant. So mm-hmm. they just decided my sister was like, well, we should like have, we should call the thing a name. Like, I don't want to refer to my sibling as like it. And so my five-year-old, my sister who was five years old at the time was so precocious. She was like, well, you know what? I know that Nikki is like a name for both boys and girls. We're just going to call the baby Nikki until it comes out. But by the time I came out, my parents were so used to calling me Nikki that that ended up being my name. (laughs) How did you feel about that? I mean, I didn't have a choice at the time. Um, I think right now I feel pretty good about it. I mean, I honestly, I feel way too much pride about the fact that like most people don't have the name Nikki. Like it's a nickname for most people, but like I haven't yet met another Nikki. I know. I think I know one. And, and then your full name is Nikki. No, no, no. It's just a That's nickname. I don't know anyone else whose full name is Nikki. Yeah, exactly. So I know you're fond of history, so let's talk about Nikki's personal history. By starting, <laughs> at, by starting at the beginning, where were you born? I was born in Naperville, Illinois, mm-hmm. which, um, what's it famous for? Naperville's famous for being voted like the best city to live in America for a few really? years. Yeah, um, it's pretty nice, like a nice suburb outside of Chicago. Um, but when I was five, we moved to Vienna, Austria which coincidentally a few years later was named the best city to live in the world. So good luck. Clearly. There's a trend here. There's a trend. (laughs) I like to say it's a direct correlation. (laughs) Um, So yeah, born in Naperville, lived there for five years, but then my dad got a job in Vienna, Austria. So we moved to Europe. Your parents, as you mentioned, you're Indian descent. Did they move to the U S first or were they second generation? Um, so my mom, they both were born in India. My mom grew up in the U.S. She moved to Michigan when she was six years old. Um, and then my dad, actually, he first headed to Canada for his Ph.D. So he was in Edmonton for his Ph.D. And then um, when they got married, they moved to the U.S. They like cold places? Clearly. <laughs> Edmonton, Michigan, Chicago. Was there a reason why your mom moved to Michigan? Um, This was in the 60s. And so this was right after the Immigration Act was passed in the U.S., Mm -hmm. in which it meant that like people with getting master's and graduate master's and like Ph.D. degrees were now being welcomed in from like, you know, Asia and Mm -hmm. and other and, and other continents and so my grandfather um, came in 66 to pursue his um, higher education. Hmm. And then you guys moved to Vienna. How old were you when you moved to Vienna? Five. Five years old. Man. So you don't remember the States? A little bit, maybe. I rem- Yeah, like I don't remember from ages zero to five. I don't l- remember the United States of America as like, a country, but I of course have like snippets of memory of like my preschool and my backyard. Um, but we moved when I was five and then every summer we would come back to the U S to spend the summer with my mom's family. So 
I do feel like I remember the U.S. as a kid because we were here every summer. Oh, for the summer only. Mm -hmm. So what kind of child were you? Ooh. Uh, that's a, wait, what, I don't know how to answer that question. What kind of child were you? Yeah, were you a troublemaker? Were you a good oh. kid? No. No, no, no. I was, like, very straight-laced. I used to be very shy. Um, not anymore. But I used to be very shy, very... Like, I got along with adults at a very young age, uh, for better or for worse. Um, I loved school. And although I didn't like history until very late, um, but I loved, like, math. Um, and, yeah, it was very, like... I don't know if I met my younger self today. <laughs> I don't know if I'd like, I think I would be like, Oh, she's cute. Like, okay, cool. But like, I don't know if I'd be best friends with my younger self. I would yeah. just be like, she's a little nerd. Yeah. I see that fascinating that if you look back and think about your old self and like, yo, like me, for example, right. I think about my high school self. I'm like, yo, what a douche. What what made you not so great in high school? I mean, it was okay. It's just like, you know, I talk a lot and speak loud with no essence. No, I still speak without essence, but I think I'm better now. <laughs> but like, do you feel like you were obnoxious in high school? Obnoxious? Maybe a little bit, but I'm I'm always been funny. Like I love making people laugh. So mm -hmm. I was I was good with that. But obnoxious i don't think so i don't uh, not so much i guess but you know like you 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 were saying that you know you look back and like your younger self is what a nerd you know like she doesn't have that darkness in her yet <laughs> am i right so true i was full of light then no darkness whatsoever <laughs> so describe how growing up in vienna was like for you Hmm. Um, so it was an odd experience in that uh, my, um, we went to the American International School. So we very much lived in a bubble um, because we went to an American school. So there were a lot of like Americans around us and there was a lot of like American culture, um, even though like obviously we lived in Vienna, Austria. And um, back in the 90s when we moved, there wasn't like, Vienna today is like one of the most internationally renowned cities and like everyone goes there. They love being tourists there. But in the 90s, it was not, it did not have that reputation. And so like, I say that because it wasn't as international. So like, it's not like people spoke English regularly when you would go to shops and restaurants and things like that. Um, it was not nearly as clean. It was quite dirty, actually. So it like really? looked very different. Yeah, they did some really interesting um work in the early 2000s to like transform the city to become like a tourist hub and they were very successful but back then like all the streets were just covered in like dog shit and like horse shit and because there's more dogs than kids there and like it was just very very different um it was just kind of like gloomier back then mm -hmm. and um anyway so we lived in like so we were part of this american bubble so it was we didn't ever fully integrate into mm. Austria. Like my parents never became fluent in German. We weren't really friends with that many like actual Austrians other than like the few that went, attended the school. The other thing that was weird 
is it felt very, uh, we always felt like we, as if we were in a state of transition because mm-hmm. um, the most of the people that were attending the school were expats of some sort. So they were only there for like three, four years usually. And then they would leave. Whereas like, because of my dad's job, we ended up being there for a long, long time. And so it was weird because if you look back, I remember my high school graduation, they had the students stand up according to like how long they'd been at the school. (laughs) And it was like, it was a very odd tradition, but it was like me and two Austrian kids. And that's it. That had been there for like since kindergarten. And then like everyone else had just gotten there in the last like three, four years. Um, So it was a weird experience in that like you had a new life every few years. Yeah. But can you go outside the bubble as you say and be friends with other people oh you could but i mean i don't know about you but as a kid my whole life was around the school in that like those were my friends those are the people i hung out with like that's who you'd have like play dates with as an elementary kid and that's who you'd hang out with in high school so you could go outside but like everything was like any clubs i was in that was part of the school so like it's not that you couldn't leave the bubble it's just that it was a very all-encompassing bubble yeah like it's like there's no point to go outside you have everything here yeah yeah like not only if there's no point but like where's the opportunity as a kid like you know you wake up you get ready for school you go to school you get home you do your homework you go to bed like where's the time that you would really interact with outside of the school of life well for you, because you're a, you were a good kid, like you say, you were a nerd. If I, it was me, dude, I would be walking around the city and finding out trouble, man. <laughs> I guess that does really betray my like naivete because I, um, yeah, that was my whole life, school and like my friends from school. Yeah, I mean, I'm mean, good for you, but I'll be like, yo, I don't want to do homework. I'm gonna go find something there. <laughs> I love that. That was never even a thought in my mind. Like it never occurred to me that I could just not do my homework. (laughs) I didn't even realize that was an option. I don't think I I have done homework, but I let's say I have thousands of homework. I probably did like 10 of them. (laughs) (laughs) I hate homework. I hate it. Like, why do you think you hated it? Because I just did. I just spent like an eight hours at school. Why would I need to come home and do more school? Fair. You know what I mean? So the group in your bubble, was it diverse? Was it diverse? It was diverse in some ways um, and some ways not. So I was the only brown kid um, in like, our family was one of the only brown families many years. Occasionally there'd be like one or two other brown families. How did you feel when you say like, oh, another one? I, I would feel weird because like, I kind of thought that we would be best friends. <laughs> I'd oh. be like, Oh, we should like hang out. And yeah. they didn't, but they would often be very different because maybe they weren't like they they might be Brown, but they weren't like from America. They were maybe mm. from like the UK or they had grown up in like Africa. And so like, we didn't actually share that much cultural background so I actually shared a lot more cultural background with like the white American expats um and so that's who I hung out with um 
mostly white American expats, but like there'd also be, there was a lot of um, like Korean and Japanese kids in our school. Uh, and then of course, like the Austrians. Um, so we had every type of European. So every flavor of white existed at our school. Every flavor. Every flavor. <laughs> like the, the whitest like, white to the pink to the almost red. It's like the um, makeup palettes where they have like 10 different shades of quote unquote nude. And then there's like one brown and one black. That was basically <laughs> our school. Did you ever question that? Like, why am I the only, you know, brown person here? I didn't ever question it. Like, I knew why. I was like, oh, this is... Because the thing is, for my five years in Chicago, I knew that there were a lot of brown people there. And I knew that there were a lot of brown people in the U.S. And, of course, like, when I would visit India, I knew. So I knew that there were brown people on this earth. Um, and I just knew we were in the wrong place. And so I never, I think I, I, I never felt like Austria was home. And I'm sure that was a huge reason why, um, because we didn't blend in, we didn't fit. Um, and I was like, no, my people are either in the US or they're in India, but they're not here. Well, actually, you guys are all over the world. <laughs> Clearly not in big enough numbers for my liking. Right, eh? How... How long did you stay there? What age did you leave? So we were there for two stints. So I was there from ages five to 13. And then my family did a quick move back to the U.S. But then two years later, my dad was like, psych, we're moving back. And so then at 15, we moved back to Vienna. And then I stayed there till 18 when I graduated high school. And then I came to the U.S. How did you feel when he says, psych, guess what? Back to the white people. I was devastated um, because I had been like really finally integrated into my new life. I loved being closer to family. I like felt, I don't know, just like life was better. Um, then, so I was really devastated to move back. But that said, I had a pretty good, like I was, once I like integrated back in, I was, I was happy. Mm -hmm. And when did the darkness come in? Because you told me earlier you were a very sweet child. When did the darkness come in? Is it that time? I think so. I think maybe there was some residual trauma. But I think a bit part of it is that I made a conscious choice in high school to not be shy anymore. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if like the um, cost of not being shy meant that I also had to become like harder and snarkier too. I don't know. <laughs> Um, all I know is now I'm no longer considered, no one ever uses the term sweet to describe me anymore. Mm. So something changed. <laughs> What made you decide to not be shy anymore? I, I was tired of it and I was bored of it. And I was like, I don't like feeling like trapped anymore. And like, I, I can't believe I had this much like self-awareness at mm. 13. 15. I wish I had that now. I feel like I've become less wise as I've grown up. <laughs> I feel like I used to be much wiser. You But and at 15, I. I was like, okay, I'm going to have to move back there. I don't want to have to go back to that persona that I was because in the two years in the US, I'd grown a lot. And I was like, I don't want to go back to being that person. And I realized like, oh, I don't, I don't have to go back to being that person because again, 
one of the beauties of that school is that the population would cycle out every couple of years. So yeah. by the time I moved back, most people didn't know me. So it was great. I could just be a whole new person. Yeah. Like one year you'll be like the sweet and nice Nikki. The next year, like, yo, guess what? It's going to be the bitch Nikki this year. Exactly. And no one will question. <laughs> To be fair, my version of like this badass girl is like the girl who like was in the school musical. So like, I don't know if that's that like <laughs> audacious, but that was my version of like a transformation. Nice. So around those times, did you get in trouble? No, 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 still no, no, a, no. Still a nice Nikki. I was still um, a rule follower mm -hmm. and... Yes, I'll just say that. I was still very much a rule follower. Where did that come from? I mean, I don't know. On one hand, it's very easy to be like immigrant parents, strict, like you have to do what you're supposed to do. But like I'm saying, like I never felt, I never even had the desire to do something bad, right? Like, or go against the rules. Mm -hmm. And so like, I just don't really know where it came from in that sense, because part of it does feel innate, although I'm sure much of it was socialized. I just don't, it's hard to discern what is me versus what is society mm -hmm. and what is culture. Uh, yeah, but I would say all three of my, like, I have two other siblings, and all three of us are very much rule followers. Lucky mom and dad. They are very lucky. Right? Tell them. Tell them every day. You're like, yo, mom, dad, you guys got lucky on man. Right? That is, I should remind them. <laughs> happy yeah. Father's Day. You got very lucky. Aren't you lucky? You should be happy. Yeah, be proud and be, you're super lucky. Right? So... Many of my guests claim that they went through dual identity, but I feel you're a different case because you're ethnically Indian, and then you grew up in Australia, Austria, and then you're American. Having said all those, can you tell us any instances how you finally consolidate your identity? Ooh. Honestly... I struggled with that for a while because I think the, so growing up in Austria, I didn't really want to claim the Indian identity because mm. it felt so different and like everyone, no one else had it. And so I just wanted to be American. Then when I moved back to the U.S. for college, I very much wanted to claim my Indian identity because there were so many other Indian Americans. Like I wanted to be part of that like culture. I saw it as special and I wanted to relate to these other Brown American kids. But in college, I discovered that I wasn't the typical Indian American because I grew up in Austria. And so I didn't have the same reference points. I didn't have the same cultural experiences and I didn't have the same like connections. And so I felt very much like I wasn't actually like the, a real Indian American um, because I didn't have any of those experiences. And so I felt like once again, like an alien of like, oh my God, I, I don't belong here. And so I think it's only like, honestly, now the last couple of years of starting Kahani where I'm like, finally feel like I'm leaning into all three parts 
of that, of my identity and saying, Hey, like brown skin, brown parents, like I want to explore South Asia, but you can hear I'm very, very American Midwestern in terms of accent. And in terms of like the storytelling we do, it's very much like an international perspective and a global perspective. And I think this, the, that probably comes from my background. Mm, Yeah. So when you were in the States and you said, oh, I don't belong here. For me, it sounds like you didn't feel that you belong in any group. Yeah, I didn't feel like I, so when I was in college, I felt like I was American. Like I didn't have to question that I was American, but I, I didn't, I couldn't drill down that identity any further because I obviously didn't fit in with the white Americans, but I didn't fit in with the Indian Americans. So who did I fit in with? And I didn't fit in with the international kids either. So I didn't fit in with anyone. Um, And I think the icing on the cake was that I applied, I went to the university of Michigan. Mm -hmm. I applied for residency. Like I was from Michigan and the university denied my claim saying, no, you have to pay out of state tuition. And in my appeal letter, I said, look, I am a citizen of the United States of America. I'm saying my state is Michigan. If I don't, if Michigan's not my state and you're saying Michigan's not my home, what state of the United States of America am I a resident of? Hmm. Um, And they didn't answer that, of course. They were like, just give us your money. Um, But (laughs) I think that really illustrates this idea of like, yes, I was American, but I didn't actually fit into the physical geography of america in terms of roots that's so weird but social life who were you hanging out with um so my freshman year i tried to hang out with like the indian americans but i just like didn't fit then i ended up um becoming an ra um Mm -hmm. in the dorms and those became my friends because i found one michigan does a really good job of like recruiting and hiring a diverse set of RAs. And so it was like the, one of the most diverse groups on campus was the Mm. groups of RAs. And it was all like people who were interested in the similar things of like I was, which was like social justice and trying like self growth and like this beautiful combination. And so, um, yeah, that those were my people. Mm -hmm. For the people that doesn't know what's an RA is, could you please explain it? Oh, yeah. A residential assistant. So the person who it's like the classroom monitor, it's like the nerd version for college, right? You got to be like, don't do this. Don't do that. Although I will say by my senior year, I was a terrible RA because I was the one that was like trying to get them to drink with me in the hall, even though they were very much not supposed to. So I guess I was not a good RA. I feel again, there's a pattern here. You come in very sweet, very nice, real <laughs> followers. And then at the end, the darkness comes in like, Nicker, come join us. Maybe, maybe it's more of like I'm pulling a Picasso where it's like you got to learn the rules first before you can break them. I don't know. I think it's something else. <laughs> you don't like this literary. <laughs> I always try hey, to elevate my bad behavior. <laughs> I love Picasso, but I don't think it, this doesn't fit. I don't think so. So... I saw that you were a member or, or you're a chair of Yoni Kibat, if I pronounce that properly. How important was that for you? And did that help you 
integrate with the South Asian uh, group? Yeah, I think that was absolutely it because I realized like, okay, I didn't fit into the general blanket of South Asian Americans, but I found my niche of like, oh, like progressive women who are like really, really digging deep into what does it mean to be a South Asian American woman? I was like, oh, these are my people. So I discovered that like my junior year and felt very seen for the first time. Mm. Um, and just, and that's why I ended up, yeah, like chairing it and, and doing a bunch of organizing for it because I felt like I'd found my people and not only like, did I feel like I belonged, but I felt like they were making me a much more introspective version of myself, which is always a delightful thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, for the people that doesn't know what Yoni Kibat means and what what was the goal of the group? Mm, so it is a South Asian version of Eve Ensler's The Vagina Monologues. And so they... The, there was a group of women called the South Asian Sisters, actually, that were here in the Bay Area. Um, and this was about 15 years ago where they saw the show, The Vagina Monologues, which is this incredible groundbreaking work where women would, where Eve Ensler had written this play of a set of monologues that women would perform to like discuss gender and sex and identity um, in really new ways and breaking taboos. And so these women saw it and were like, what if there was a Desi version of this? And they, so they made two big changes. So one, they had, they sourced, instead of one woman writing the show, they sourced um, scripts and, and pieces from the community um, to better represent the community within multiple voices. And then two, they actually have a very uh, decentralized structure. So they started Yoni Kibat here in the Bay Area but then they said like, okay, if you're a South Asian woman elsewhere, you can start your own show and make it your own. So like mm. by the time I was in college, there was like a strong like chapter in at Michigan, which was very much focused on like the college version and like the South Asian woman's experience in college. And it was so cool. Like every year the show is totally different because they source new pieces from the community. Mm -hmm. Did you perform? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I loved yeah. performing. <laughs> what about it? Um, I love performing when I have a script because then I can like practice and practice and practice. The rule <laughs> and, follower. Yes. And then I get to be the center of attention um, <laughs> and get all these like this validation and these words of affirmation. <laughs> so um, and also there's just like sudden things so cathartic about performing a piece that like means so much to you in front of a group of strangers. Hmm. Like, you wrote it? Feelings. Did you write your piece? A couple of years. Yeah, there were a couple of years that I wrote my own pieces and then a couple of years I performed other people's pieces. Oh, so you collaborate. Yeah, I mean, each show is different, but the way that the Michigan show worked is we would do a call for scripts and we would say like any South Asian woman in the community, if you have like a story you want to share, mm -hmm. send us the, the, the piece, like write down, write a script and send it to us. And then we will pick 10. Mm -hmm. And then if you wrote it, 
you get the choice if you want to perform it yourself. But if not, we will then open it up to auditions and have people audition to perform that piece. What is it, like poetry or just essay? What, what kind of piece? Um, a couple are poetry. Um, monologue. So the only rule is like it's monologue. So it's a one woman thing. Each piece is just like one person on stage. Um, some are just kind of like essays, like personal essays that you're saying aloud. Others are more like almost like um, some were like more like stand up comedy, almost mm -hmm. like just coming up there and telling like some jokes, but like that were very, uh, yeah, near and dear to someone's heart. Um, others kind of like in a play where a character will come up and like have like a five minute soliloquy almost. Mm -hmm. Some pieces were like that. Mm. So you graduated Michigan. Did you transfer or did you move to the Bay instantly or was there like... Um, there was a three month transition period where I was unemployed and living in my parents' house. Like, oh my God, I need to get out of here. Someone hire me. <laughs> and then I finally got hired and I rushed to the Bay Area. I got this like fellowship and nonprofit management mm -hmm. and I came out here. Did you, and was there like a, who helped you move like by yourself or? Um, just me. Yeah. I, I, uh, my cousins helped me pack up my stuff from college. We put it up in suitcases and boxes. And then I flew on like, I think I flew in like Spirit Airlines when I moved. And I just had like four giant boxes and suitcases and rolled them all. I took the shuttle to mm -hmm. my, I had a cousin that lived in San Francisco. Okay. So I brought all my luggage to her tiny apartment with like her baby. And I stayed there for a week until I found a place. Mm. Were you afraid to move by yourself? No, I um, I've never been afraid of like doing things myself or moving. Um, like I moved, yeah. Like I would take back in college, I took summer internships in places I'd never been. Um, then I moved out here in San Francisco. Then like when I was twenty seven, I moved to India. I didn't know anyone there. Like I just. I should be more scared, but I don't moving and doing things by myself does not scare me. Other things scare me, but not that. Mm. So is this internship? What was the, what were you doing in the, the Bay? I was doing, so it was this fellowship and nonprofit management. So I was doing, I was working at a nonprofit here um, called TechSoup and I was working on their strategy team because at the time I really was interested in, Uh, creating change through like nonprofit organizations. And like, that's how I thought I was going to uh, like my, make my mark on the world it was like through nonprofits. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I was working there. And that's led, led you to, what, what was the name? The secure job? <laughs> I forgot the name. <laughs> yeah, I guess it very weirdly led me to joining a cybersecurity startup. Um, I'll say it led me in two ways. One It got me out here to the Bay Area where I learned like, oh, there's this whole thing called like startups, which I had never encountered because I was like not anti-capitalist, but I was very much like the, the liberal college student of like social justice, nonprofits, government, like private companies are bad. Mm -hmm. And then I came out here in San Francisco. I was like, oh, okay. Money's okay. good. He's <laughs> <laughs> necessary, but also just like, okay, this is actually, you know, I'd been assigning value judgments 
to what ends up becoming just tax statuses of for-profit or non-profit. Ultimately, each organization can be good or bad on its own. And so I was interested in this idea of startups and being able to like have a, an idea and create massive impact. And so that is what got me into the cybersecurity company because I was like, I want to explore entrepreneurship and I want to understand like how you make a huge change in this world. Mm. And then you decided to quit the job. <laughs> yeah, because after four years there, I was like, okay, cool. I understand how to make a change. Now I want to make the change that I've been looking for, which is Ghani and like really changing the narrative of history. And so that's, I was like, all right, let's, let's do this. And so I quit. And of course, you know, starting your own thing is never as easy. Like, I didn't think it would be easy. I knew from the beginning, like, this is going to be hard. I just didn't know how it was going to be hard. Mm -hmm. So like, I couldn't know that it was going to be difficult. Like, I know if I ever to have kids, being a parent is going to be hard, but I don't know how, like, I don't know where in my body I'm going to hurt the most. Yeah. Or when it's three in the morning and the baby is crying. Exactly. Like, I don't know what's going to feel the hardest for me until I'm in it. So similarly, like, I knew on an intellectual level, this is going to be difficult, but I had no idea how difficult. <laughs> like you said earlier, is that naivete or something else? Oh, I'm sure there's a little bit of naivete of like, let's just do this thing. Like, what's the worst <laughs> that could happen? Like so many bad things could have happened and mm. still could happen. But of course, I don't think about that for better or for worse. <laughs> so how disappointed were your parents when you quit your job <laughs> and how worried were they <laughs> that my parents were extremely supportive oh it's awesome yeah um they were like yeah go go try something out and if it doesn't work it doesn't work at this point now two years in my dad's like so <laughs> <laughs> what's the plan <laughs> And I'm like, we're working on it. We're working on it. Big things are coming. <laughs> Big things. Uh, but um, otherwise, but he did call me up today and he's like, you know what? I think you're right. I think you're on the right track. I think you're you're going about to do big things. I was like, okay, dad, thanks. What made him say that? I mean, I spent like an hour and a half yesterday walking him through my plan of like, hey, <laughs> this is what we've done over the last like eight months. Here's the next eight months. Um, basically stop, stop bugging me to go to grad school <laughs> <laughs> and it worked. The pitch worked. Yeah. Good for you. So let's talk about Kahani and how did you start and everything? Everything. Oh goodness. Um, so like, like, oh gosh. Okay, fine. We'll start from the beginning. I guess that's probably the best place to start. I, had the idea that I wanted to change the historical narrative because I personally had always been interested in learning more about like South Asian history. Um, but it always felt like it was on the peripheral, like the periphery, like, Oh, it's just not important to like American life. And that's why I don't know it. And so my mind was blown when I 
finally realize the truth, which is like, no, it's not that it wasn't important. It's that we have written out its importance from the narrative. And so we've just erased those parts or we've rewritten some parts. And so I was like, oh, I want to write a new historical narrative where like, it's not Eurocentric. And we talk about the world um, from South Asia's perspective, from Mexico's perspective, from China's perspective, and not always Eurocentric. And so that was like, okay, this is what I'm interested in. Okay, well, does anyone else care? Hmm. Most people don't actually give a shit about history. Like okay. if you ask them, like, are you a history buff? But then I stepped back and was like, okay, where are the time, what times in our lives do people care about history? One is obviously in school. You have to care about it because you're being tested on it. Mm. Two is like on TV and like on screens, like if there's a fun drama like the crown everyone loves history when it's like through the crown the tv show or like fun movies like there's always a world war ii movie and then third is like when we travel we like to go on tours and learn about like different cultures and different histories mm-hmm. but when i broke it down like that i was like okay so we can be in one of these areas and so i picked travel because um i saw that as like the the fastest growing and the area for most potential. So I moved to India. I was like, all right, we are going to create these like awesome stories that change people's idea of what India was and therefore what India is. And we're going to do it in this really immersive way. We're going to create these on-demand podcast tours. It was a brilliant idea, if I say so myself, and it was working out great. And then in February of 2020, I was like, okay, we have validated the idea. Like there's clearly people are willing to pay for this. This is awesome. We've got great reviews. It's time to like incorporate this company and hire. Did so incorporation paperwork came like February 23rd. And then two weeks later, COVID became a thing. (laughs) And travel died. Travel literally died overnight. Um, and so, yeah, that that's one of the many ways starting at my own thing was hard in ways I could not expect. Yeah. So then it took like six months of recuperation. I had to finally, I had to figure out how to get out of India. That took three months. Then I had to figure out where I was going to live. That took another three months. Then I had to like, be like, what just happened over the last year and a half? That took a couple months. But by the end of 2020, I was like, okay. Travel, we don't know when that's going to be a thing again. Um, Let's go back to those two channels. There's school and there's screens. Okay, well, let's try screens now. Let's see if we can change the historical narrative that way. So we decided to, or I decided to work on a podcast, like Mm -hmm. this narrative nonfiction podcast, which I think maybe that's what you heard a snippet of. Um, And so then I started pitching it to different podcast companies and production companies. So I spent like half of 2021 pitching it to anyone who would answer my email or answer my call could not find a partner that wanted to air this show. That was like, uh, either I found people that were like, this is amazing, but we have no idea how to reach the Desi American audience. And I'm like, with me, with me, this is how, with this show. <laughs> or other people are like, mm, this isn't really our style. And I'm like, okay, so pitch, pitch, pitch. Okay. It didn't work. No one wanted to run the show. Okay, so that's like mid-2021. Okay, so we've exhausted travel. Screens is maybe a possibility in the future, but no one wants to put it on a screen now. Okay, we can put it out ourselves, but then no one's going to listen. Hmm. Let's think about this third channel, schools. 
So then we started working with high school history teachers to figure out, okay, how can we help them diversify their curriculum and widen the historical narrative? And it turns out they were very interested in having a podcast. So we actually got to go back to producing this podcast alongside curriculum for it. Um, and so that's that's kind of where Fahani is now working on developing these this media and these this content to help high school teachers widen the historical narrative. Mm. Let's go back a little bit. You mentioned that you moved to India. Why do you have to move to India? Why can't you just work on it here in North America? Oh, because the idea was to um, teach history through travel. And so if the idea here is, so no one wants to learn about Indian history in Michigan, but if they're traveling to, to Bombay, then like, then they want to take a tour. So I had to move there to like, under, you know, be able to market to the tourists, like on site to be able to do the, if, as a one person uh, business, I had to be able to like walk and measure the tour myself because we had it like GPS. Uh, we had it correlated with GPS. So we had to like tag the location. Oh, wow. It, all of that. So I had to be on the ground for all of that. What? That's a lot of work. Yes. Yes, it is a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> you got it done, though. It happened. It existed. I'm glad some people got to take the tour. Others, hopefully, will get to take them in the future. It will happen. It will happen. So I read that what inspired you starting Kahani was you went to these caves. I forgot the name of the caves. I'm terrible with names. The Alora Caves. The Alora Caves. So I remember seeing this on uh, Ripley's Believe It or Not when I was young. No way! Yes, yes. They say like, oh, this is a, this is a whole, like, let's say city made out of rocks. I'm like, wait, what do you mean rocks? And yeah, they, they chiseled the whole city from a whole rock. I'm like, yo, that is insane. And I love that you said that if this is was in Europe, it will be in, on a poster. It, everything is, is it will be marketed, but because it's India, no one gives a shit, <laughs> right? I'm gonna ask you. So, yes, people will come and people will visit these places, but you know, tourists—they're assholes. They'll ruin places. Are you not worried about that? Very much so, and so. The idea was, okay, if we are going to be part of every solution creates a new problem. So the idea here was, okay, we're going to be solving the issue of uh, the historical narrative, which causes a lot of other issues, right? Like racism, identity issues. So we're going to solve that problem. In solving that problem, we might cause... Uh, environmental issues in terms of destroying like the local environment. We might cause class inequality. We might do all these things. So how can we rectify those or prevent those uh, follow on problems and instead make sure that we are um, benefiting the community and not taking away from it. And so at the time, the, the, the plan was to hire locally. So the people that would be selling on the ground, the tours would be local people from those communities. So like local villagers in the case of the Alora um, caves. And then we were going to designate a certain amount of the profits 
from the tours to um, restoration and kind of uh, renovations and beautification. Mm-hmm. I, like, I like the plan. It's nice. Yeah, you know, plans are great. <laughs> Stay positive. Well, they are plans. You you sold you sold it to your dad. Believe it. <laughs> exactly. So, the podcast. Are you going to continue it? Yes. So the show, um, we're still in production um, because it's a narrative. It's a limited series narrative nonfiction um, podcast. So the first season is six episodes. Each episode is about 30 minutes. The plan is to um, launch the first episode next month in, in November. Mm-hmm. And where are you going to release it? It'll be on all podcast apps. Um, you can choose your favorite one to listen to it. Yeah, for sure. I'm going to promote it, obviously. Um, I think we're getting there. But before we end, do you have any more questions or topics or anything that you would like to add? Oh, I mean, this was I'm so impressed by your level of research and the thought that you put into these questions. I I had such a delightful time. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, I try. I'm not you, as you succeeded. <laughs> thank you. I'm not as accurate and I'm as not in depth as your research, which I love, but I try anyway. You did well. Thank you. All right. So before we end, would you would you want to promote your uh, Kahani again, the website, uh, Instagram, whatever else? Oh yeah, I would so love it if your listeners followed us on Kahani on Instagram at Kahani. That's with two A's. Dot io um, if they like memes and like history told in memes. But if you like uh, more elevated experiences, you should go to our website, which is just K-A-H-A-A-N-I, Kahani.io. So both are Kahani.io, whichever platform you choose. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Nikki, again, for coming on the past. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. I loved this. Um, yeah. Thanks so much for your time. No problem. Thank you. Have a good evening. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Again, Nikki, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, listeners, for listening. This is Erin Deliosa for An Immigrant's Life. I'll see you guys later.